You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, you can hear these podcasts at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English, and they've given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of uh, Collected Works Volume 155 by Rudolf Steiner, entitled Christ in the Human Soul. And it's, these lectures are translated by Agnes Schneeburg de Stur. This is Lecture 4, given in Neurköping on May 29, 1912. I mentioned yesterday that what is to be said here about anthroposophical moral principles and impulses should be built on facts. And it was for this reason that I endeavored to bring forward a number of facts which, in a most remarkable way, can testify to moral impulses. What stood out most, what became quite evident, was that mighty moral impulses must have been at work in a personality, such as Francis of Assisi, in order for him to have been able to do the deeds that he did. For what kind of deeds were they? In the case of Francis of Assisi, these were deeds that demonstrated morality in the very highest sense of the word. He was, to begin with, surrounded by people afflicted with very serious diseases, for which the rest of the world knew no cure at that time. The way his moral impulses worked was such that they did not merely give comfort to the souls of these critically ill people, and in many cases that was all that could be achieved, but that the moral impulses, the moral forces, streaming out from Francis of Assisi, actually had healing, health-giving effects for those patients who had developed a sufficiently high level of faith and trust. Now, in order to be able to penetrate even more deeply into the question regarding the origin of moral impulses, especially in the case of such an outstanding personality as Francis of Assisi, we must ask, how did it come about that he could develop such forces? What took place within him? To be able to understand what was active in the soul of this extraordinary human being, we must cast our gaze somewhat further afield. Let us go back to the ancient culture of India. Recall that in this civilization there were certain divisions, that the people were divided into four castes, and that the highest of these was the caste of the Brahmins, the cultivators of wisdom. The separation of the castes in ancient India was so strict that, for example, the sacred books could only be read by the Brahmins and not by members of the other castes. The members of the second caste, the warriors, were only allowed to hear, not read, the teachings contained in the Vedas or in the compendium of the Vedas, the Vedanta. The Brahmins alone were allowed to explain any passage from the Vedas, in other words, interpret the meaning of the Vedas. Everyone else was strictly forbidden to have an opinion about the treasures contained in the sacred books. The second caste consisted of those pursuing the warrior skills and those administering the country's affairs. Then there was a third caste of people who were responsible for trade and commerce, and a fourth a laboring caste. And last of all, there was an utterly despised segment of the population, the pariahs. They were so despised that a Brahmin who so much as stepped on a pariah's 
shadow already felt contaminated and even had to undergo certain purification rites as a result of having stepped on the shadow of such an unclean, in quotes, human being. For that is how pariahs were looked upon. We see here then the peculiar division of human beings into four recognized castes, and one caste that was utterly unacknowledged. And if we ask, is it really the case that such severe rules were observed in ancient India? Then the answer must be, they were indeed observed, and strictly so. And even during the time when the Greco-Latin cultural epoch had already begun in Europe, no member of the warrior caste in India would ever have dared to have a personal opinion about what is contained in the sacred books, the Vedas. Now, how could it have happened that such a division of human beings arose? Why had this kind of division come into the world? Is it not remarkable that we find this caste system precisely among the most advanced people of antiquity, in the very people who already in comparatively early times had migrated from ancient Atlantis over to Asia? in the very people who already in comparatively early times had migrated from ancient Atlantis over to Asia, in the people who had preserved the greatest wisdom and knowledge treasures from the ancient Atlantean era? This seems strange indeed. How are we to understand, to comprehend something like this? It almost seems as if it were to contradict all the wisdom and goodness of the world order and the world guidance, that one group alone should be separated off and be appointed to preserve the highest treasure, while others should be predestined by the mere fact of their birth to occupy subordinate positions. This can be understood only by looking into the secrets of existence. Evolution, existence is possible only through differentiation, through segmentation. If all people had wished to attain the degree of wisdom, attained in the Brahmin caste, then no one would have been able to reach it. It would therefore not be right to say, quote, if all human beings cannot in the same way attain to the highest wisdom, then this contradicts the divine world order, the divine world guidance. Close quote. This would make no more sense than to demand that an omniscient and omnipotent God should make a triangle with four corners. No God can make a triangle other than with three corners. For what is ordered and determined according to inner rules of the Spirit must also be adhered to by the divine regulators. The laws governing special boundaries are just as strict, as for example in determining that a triangle can only have three corners, as are the laws of evolution in determining that development must come about through differentiation, that certain groups of human beings must be separated off so that a particular quality can develop in human evolution. And for this to happen, some human beings must be excluded for a time. This is not just a law of human evolution. Rather, it is a law of all evolution. Consider the form of the human body you will have no problem recognizing that the most perfected and valuable parts of the human form are the bones of the head. But how could these particular bones have become skull bones and envelop the noble organ of the brain? Seen from their rudimentary structure, 
All human bones could potentially become skull bones, but in order for some of the bones of the whole skeleton to actually develop to this higher level, to become protective casings for the front and back of the head, the hip bones and joint bones had to remain at a lower stage of development. For the hip bones and joint bones do indeed have the innate possibility of becoming skull bones, equally as much as the bones that have actually done so. This is how it is everywhere throughout the world. Progress is possible only because of the fact that some remain behind while others advance further and even overshoot a certain point of development. Accordingly, one might say that the Brahmins advanced beyond a certain midpoint of development while the lower castes remained behind this point. As the Atlantean catastrophe was taking place, groups of people wandered from Atlantis, the ancient continent, located where the Atlantic Ocean is today, and gradually migrated eastward, populating the lands now known as Europe, Asia, and Africa. Parenthesis, we shall not consider today the groups who migrated westward, whose descendants were later discovered in America. Close parenthesis. After the event of the Atlantic catastrophe, the body of people who migrated eastward consisted not just of the four castes who settled in India, There were actually seven castes migrating eastward from ancient Atlantis, and the four who settled in India were in fact the four higher castes. Apart from the fifth caste, the pariahs, who constituted, as it were, an intermediate element, German Zwischen substance, of the population in India, there were also other castes who did not join those migrating to India, but who remained in various places in Europe, Asia Minor, and also in Africa. What actually happened here was that only the most select castes migrated to India, and that those who remained behind in Europe had essentially quite different qualities from those who went on to India. Indeed, we can only understand what later took place in Europe if we also know that the more advanced segment of humanity of that time went on to Asia and that the main body of the population left behind in Europe consisted of people who provided the possibility for very special incarnations. If we wish to understand the nature of the special incarnations of those souls in the midst of the general mass of the ancient European population, then we must call to mind a specific event that took place in Atlantean times. At a certain time during the Atlantean age, It happened that great secrets of existence, great truths about life were betrayed, secrets that were much more profound than anything that post-Atlantean civilization has been able to ascend to. These secrets should have been limited to small circles, kept within dedicated schools, as would have been required in those times, but were instead betrayed to large segments of the Atlantean population, who thereby acquired knowledge of the mysteries and of esoteric truths for which they were not yet mature enough. As a consequence, their souls were, to a large extent, driven into a condition of moral decline, and only those who later migrated to Asia remained on the path of goodness, the path of virtue. But here again, you must not imagine that the whole European population, 
would have consisted only of people whose souls were inhabited by individuals who had suffered a moral downfall as a consequence of the temptations they had been exposed to during Atlantean times. For, scattered throughout this European population, were others who had not migrated to Asia, but who had remained behind and had taken on leading roles. Thus all over large areas of Europe, Asia Minor and Africa, there were human beings who, one might say, simply belonged to castes or ethnic groups that yielded the requisite conditions for fallen souls to live in their bodies. But there were also those human beings who had remained behind, who had not migrated to India, and could now take over the leadership. These were the better, more highly developed souls. The best regions for those souls, who had to assume the leadership in these olden times, the times during which the Indian and Persian civilizations developed, were the more northerly parts of Europe, the regions where the oldest European mystery centers also flourished. Now, a kind of protective arrangement had been instituted to guard against what had happened earlier in ancient Atlantis. In Atlantis, temptation had arisen for the above-described souls because they had been given mystery wisdom and esoteric truths for which they were unprepared. It is for this reason that in the European mystery centers the wisdom treasures had to be protected and guarded all the more. Accordingly, those who were the actual teachers of wisdom in Europe in the post-Atlantean period remained completely on the outside and preserved what they had received as a strict secret. One can say then that even in Europe there were persons who might be compared to the Brahmins of Asia, but that these European Brahmins were not outwardly known as such by anyone. They kept in the strictest sense of the word the sacred secrets absolutely secluded in the mystery centers, so that for the general population, among whom these leaders were scattered, there would be no repetition of what had already happened once in the Atlantean era. Only through the most careful protection and guardianship of the wisdom treasures was it possible for the fallen souls to be able to elevate themselves in a certain sense. For indeed, differentiation does not occur in such a way that one portion of humanity is destined from the outset to occupy a lower rank than another. Rather, what is lowered at one time is to rise higher again at a later time. For this to happen, however, the requisite conditions must be created. Thus it came about that there were souls in Europe who had fallen into temptation, who had lost their moral cohesion, but that, at the same time, there was a wisdom at work among them that came from deeply hidden sources. Now the other castes who had migrated to India also had left members behind in Europe. It was primarily the members of the second Indian caste, the warrior caste, who took on positions of power in Europe. Whereas the wise teachers, that is to say those who were equivalent to the Brahmins in India, kept themselves completely secluded and gave their counsel from hidden stations, the warriors ventured out among the people to help them advance based on the counsel of those ancient European priest-teachers. They were the ones 
who with military bearing went out to the people. The second caste wielded the greatest power in Europe in primeval times, but in their way of life they were guided by the wise sages who remained hidden. This is how it came about that precisely those who distinguished themselves with the qualities we spoke of yesterday, courage and fortitude, were the ones who became the prominent personalities of Europe. Whereas in India, wisdom was exalted and the Brahmins were revered because they interpreted the sacred writings. In Europe it was bravery and fortitude that were held in highest esteem. And the only thing the people knew was where they had to go to obtain these divine secrets, with which they then had to imbue their courage and fortitude. When we look upon the course of European culture over thousands and thousands of years, we see how the souls gradually became more advanced and elevated. But as Europe was inhabited by souls who, strictly speaking, were descendants of a population that had fallen into temptation, no suitable appreciation for the caste system of India could develop. The people were all mixed together. A differentiation a division into castes, as in India, did not occur. The only division that arose was between those who were in a leading position, an upper class, which later established itself in the most varied ways as the leading class, and those who were being led, a class of people who were led. This class consisted mainly of souls who had to struggle to uplift themselves, if we look for those souls who gradually struggled upward out of this lower class, who raised themselves from their fallen state into a higher one, then we find them chiefly in a segment of the European population of which history tells but little, of which little is mentioned in today's history books. Century after century, this population developed itself in order to rise to a higher stage, in order to recover, as it were, from the heavy blow it had received in the Atlantean period. And so what we see in Asia is a culture that progressed continuously, whereas in Europe it was more a process of restoration, of transformation from a moral downfall into a gradual moral improvement. This is how things remained for a long time, and improvement came about only because there was an extraordinary impulse to imitate in the souls of these people. Those who displayed bravery in living and working among the people were regarded as the ideals, as shining examples. They were looked upon as the first, in quotes, in German Ersten, were called sovereigns in German Fürsten, and were imitated by the others. And in this way, through these human beings who mingled with the people as leaders, the morality of all of Europe was raised. With this, however, something else became necessary in European evolution, and to understand this, we must make a clear distinction between individual soul development and the evolution, the development of a whole race. The two must not be confused. A human soul can develop in such a way that in one incarnation it embodies itself in a particular race. If, as a result, it acquires certain qualities, then in a later incarnation it can re-embody itself in an entirely different race. 
accordingly within the European population of today, it is quite possible to find souls whose previous incarnations were in India, Japan, or China. Souls do not by any means stay with the same race. Soul evolution is something quite different from racial evolution, which proceeds at its own steady pace. Now in the case of the evolution of ancient Europe, the situation was such that there were souls incarnated in the European races because they could not pass over into the Asiatic races. For that reason, these souls were obliged at that time to incarnate repeatedly in the European races. But as they advanced and improved themselves, they gradually passed over into higher races. Souls previously incarnated in the more subordinate races raised themselves to a higher level and could then incarnate in the bodily descendants of the leading population in Europe. The bodily descendants of the leading people became more and more numerous because more and more souls advanced. Having progressed in this way, they incarnated among the leading people of Europe. And what happened eventually was that the bodily form in which the bulk of the ancient European population had originally incarnated died out as a physical race. The souls, one could say, abandoned the bodies that were formed in a particular way, and these then died out. This was the reason that the lower races had fewer and fewer descendants, while the higher races had more and more. Gradually the lowest levels of the European population completely died out. This is a very specific process, which we must understand. The souls developed further, but the bodies died out. That is why we must distinguish so carefully between soul development and racial evolution. The souls reappeared in bodies stemming from higher races. Such a process, however, does not occur without having certain effects. When something like this occurs, when something disappears, as it were, something involving large geographical regions, it does not disappear into nothingness, but rather disperses and then exists in a different form. You will understand what form this took in these primeval times if you consider that with the dying out of the inferior segments of the population of which I have been speaking, the whole region gradually became filled with demonic beings, beings that represented the products of decay, the products of disintegration, of what had died out. And so the whole of Europe and also Asia Minor were filled with the spiritualized products of decay from the dying out of the inferior segments of the population. These demons of decay endured for a long time and eventually also affected the people. What happened was that these demons of decay, which remained present in the spiritual atmosphere, as it were, gained an influence over human beings at a later time and exerted that influence by permeating people's feelings and sensations. This influence can best be seen from what happened at the time of the Great Migrations, when large masses of people, including Attila and his hordes, came over from Asia, causing great terror among the people in Europe. And it was through this state of terror that the population became susceptible to the influences of the demonic beings that still persisted from earlier times. Through the influence of these demonic entities, 
and therefore as a consequence of the terror produced by the hordes coming over from Asia, there gradually developed what then manifested as leprosy, the epidemic disease of the Middle Ages. This disease was nothing other than the consequence of the state of fear and terror that the people experienced at that time. But these conditions of fear and terror could have had this effect only in the souls of people who had been exposed to the demonic forces of former times. I have now described to you why it was possible for people to succumb to a disease that was later practically eradicated in Europe, and why it was so widespread, especially during the period I identified for you yesterday. And so, we see how certain races have died out as they needed to because they did not develop to higher levels, but also how we still have the after-effects in the form of diseases that can affect human beings. The disease in question, leprosy, emerges as the result of soul spiritual causes. This whole situation had to be counteracted. Further development could come about only if that which I have just described to you were to be entirely removed from the European scene. An example of how it was removed was given in the last lecture where I showed that while the after-effects of immoral intent continued to exist as the demons of disease, strong moral impulses arose as well, as in Francis of Assisi. Because Francis of Assisi had such strong moral impulses, he also gathered around him others who worked in the same way, albeit to a lesser degree. At that time, there were actually a great many who worked in this way, but it did not last for long. How then did such a soul power arise in Francis of Assisi? Since we are not gathered here to study external science, but rather to understand human morality from its esoteric foundations, we must now take a closer look at some esoteric truths. Let us ask then, where did such a soul as Francis of Assisi's come from? A soul such as we encounter in Francis of Assisi can be understood only if we observe it a little bit more from the inside, if we take the trouble to investigate what was hidden in its depths. Here I must remind you that the old division into castes in India actually received its first blow, its first upheaval, through Buddhism. For among the many other things that Buddhism introduced into Asiatic life, was the fact that it saw no justification for the caste system. That as far as this was possible in Asia, it recognized each person's power to reach for the highest that can be attained by human beings. We know that all this was only possible through the outstandingly great and mighty personality of the Buddha. We also know that the Buddha became a Buddha in the incarnation we are usually told of, that previously he was a bodhisattva, which represents the rank just below that of a Buddha, and that this son of King Sudhadana, by experiencing in his twenty-ninth year, deep within himself, the great truths about life and sorrow, had acquired the greatness to proclaim the teaching known as Buddhism in the Asiatic world. There is something else, however, that we must not overlook, something that is also connected with this progression from Bodhisattva to Buddha. When this individuality who had passed through many incarnations as a bodhisattva 
advanced to the rank of a Buddha and thus became the Buddha, this incarnation also marked the last time he had to dwell on the earth in a physical body. This means that a person who is raised from Bodhisattva to Buddha has thereby entered an incarnation which for him will be the final one. From that time onward, such an individuality only works down from spiritual heights, only works spiritually. Accordingly, we are faced with the fact that since the 5th century BC, the individuality of the Buddha has worked exclusively down from spiritual heights. Buddhism, however, has continued. It was able to influence not just Asiatic life, but also in a certain way the cultural, spiritual life of the whole of the then known world. We know how Buddhism has spread in Asia and how many followers it has there, but in a more hidden and veiled form it has also spread within the cultural, spiritual life of Europe. In particular, we must point out that the part of the Buddha's great teaching that is related to the equality of human beings was exceptionally suited to be taken up by the population of Europe because that population was not arranged according to a caste system but instead was based on the idea of the homogeneity and equality of all human beings. Some centuries into the Christian era, a kind of mystery school was founded on the shores of the Black Sea. This mystery school was led by people who had set as their highest ideal the part of the Buddha's teachings that has just been described. But in this mystery school they were able to illuminate, to shine a new light, as it were, in these early centuries of Christianity on what Buddha had given to humanity because of the fact that they had absorbed the Christian impulse at the same time. If I were to describe this school on the Black Sea as it is viewed by the spiritual researcher, and you will understand me best if I do so, then I must characterize this school in the following manner. The people who gathered there initially had teachers on the outer physical plane. There they were instructed in doctrines and principles which had originated in Buddhism, but which were infused with the impulses that came into the world through Christianity. Then when the pupils were sufficiently prepared, they were led to the point where the deeper forces within them, the deeper wisdom forces, could be brought forth so that they acquired a clairvoyant vision of the spiritual world and were then able to see into the spiritual worlds. The first thing attained by the pupils of this mystery school, after the teachers on the physical plane, that is, teachers incarnated in physical bodies, had accustomed them to it, was the ability to recognize those who no longer descended to the physical plane. In this way they came to know the Buddha, for example. These mystery pupils actually learned to know the Buddha face to face, in quotes, if one may speak in this way of his spiritual presence. This is how the Buddha continued to work spiritually in the mystery pupils, and how, through his power, he worked down to the physical plane since he himself no longer descended to physical incarnation on the physical plane. The pupils in this mystery school were subdivided into two groups, consistent with their degree of maturity. The pupils who were thus selected had already gone through the preparatory stage and were more advanced, 
so that most of them had developed their clairvoyance to such a level that they could perceive a being who strove with all his might to bring his impulses through to the physical world, even though he did not himself descend to the physical plane, that they could get to know the Buddha in all his secrets and in all that he wished to accomplish. A fairly large number of these pupils remained clairvoyants on that level, but there were some who had, in addition to the capacities of knowledge and of soul clairvoyance, also developed to a remarkable degree the spiritual element that cannot be separated from a certain humility, a certain highly evolved capacity for devotion. These pupils then became able, precisely in this mystery school, to receive the Christ impulse to a tremendous degree. They could also become clairvoyant in such a way that they became the specially selected successors of Paul and received the Christ impulse directly into their life. One could say, then, that two groups went out from this school, one group which had the impulse to spread the teachings of the Buddha everywhere, albeit without using his name in that context, and a second group which, in addition, received the Christ impulse. Now, the difference between these two groups did not appear very strongly in that particular incarnation, but only in the next. The pupils who had come as far as the Buddha impulse, but who had not received the Christ impulse, became the teachers of human equality and brotherhood. The pupils, however, who had received the Christ impulse, developed in such a way that in their next physical incarnation the Christ impulse continued to work in them, so that they could not only teach, and they did not in fact regard this as their principal task, but could work predominantly through their moral power. One such pupil of the mystery school on the Black Sea was later born in his next incarnation as Francis of Assisi. No wonder then that in him lived the wisdom he had received, the wisdom knowledge about human fellowship and equality of all, about the need to love all human beings equally. No wonder that this knowledge pulsated through his soul and that this soul was strengthened through and through by the Christ impulse. How did this Christ impulse work further in Francis of Assisi in this subsequent incarnation? It worked in such a way that when he was placed in a population in which the old disease demons were especially active, the Christ impulse reached these disease demons through him and absorbed their evil substance into itself, thereby removing it from the people. Before this could happen, however, the Christ impulse had embodied itself in this substance in such a way that it first became a vision in Francis of Assisi, the vision in which he saw the palace and the vision in which he was called upon to take up the burden of poverty. At that time, the Christ impulse had again become alive in him, and it then streamed out from him and took hold of the diseased demons. This caused his moral forces to become so strong that they could remove the harmful spiritual substances that accompanied the above-characterized disease. It was only because of this event that the possibility was created to bring to a higher development what I have described as the after-effect of the old Atlantean element, to sweep the evil substances away from the earth and to purify the European world from these substances. 
Look at the life of Francis of Assisi and notice the remarkable way in which it unfolded. He is born in the year 1182. We know that the first years of life of a human being are largely devoted to the development of the physical body. What develops in the physical body are principally those things that manifest through external heredity. Hence, what initially manifests in Francis of Assisi are the things he inherited from the European people. Certain qualities gradually appear as his etheric body develops, just as in any other human being, between the ages of seven and fourteen. And it is from this etheric body that, above all, the quality emerges that had worked directly in him as the Christ impulse in the mystery center on the Black Sea. Then, as his astral life begins to develop at age 14, the Christ force becomes particularly enlivened in him, because that which has remained united with the atmosphere of the earth since the mystery of Golgotha now enters his astral body. Francis of Assisi's personality was such that it was also permeated by the outer Christ force, because in his previous incarnation, he had sought the Christ force where it could be found, in that special mystery center of initiation. Here we see how the process of differentiation works in humanity. Differentiation must come about. But what is driven downward to a lower level as a consequence of earlier events is later uplifted again through very special events taking place in the course of human evolution. There was another occasion when a particularly important instance of a, in quotes, lifting up took place in the evolution of humanity, one which will always remain incomprehensible from an exoteric point of view. In reality, people have given up trying to understand it, but from an esoteric point of view, it can be fully explained. It has to do with those who had raised themselves up most quickly from the lowest strata of the Western population, who had gradually overcome having to pass through the lowest strata, but had not risen very far in intellectual development and had remained relatively simple people. And the most select, the most outstanding among them, who only needed to be uplifted at a specific point in time by a mighty impulse reflected in them, were the ones who are known to us as the Twelve Apostles of Jesus. They were the extract of the lower castes who were diverted and had not continued on to India. The substance required for the disciples of Christ Jesus had to be taken from these castes. What has been said here does not refer in any way to the previous or subsequent incarnations of the Apostle individualities only to the physical ancestry of the bodies in which the apostle personalities were incarnated. One must always distinguish between the lineage of successive incarnations and the lineage of physical heredity. And with this we have now found the source of the moral power of that unique personality, Francis of Assisi. Do not say that Considering the usual caliber of human capacities, it would be too much to expect people to adopt such extraordinary ideals as lived in Francis of Assisi. 
What has been said here was certainly not intended to imply that anyone could be advised to become a Francis of Assisi. Not at all. The intention was to point out by means of a particularly striking example how moral power can enter into a human being, where such power can originate from, and how it must be understood as something very special, something that was originally present in human beings. However, from the whole spirit of what has been said up to now, you may take away one thing in particular, which we have already emphasized regarding other forces in human evolution, namely that humanity has gone through a descent and is now beginning an ascent. When we go back in human evolution, we pass through the post-Atlantean age to the Atlantean catastrophe, then into the Atlantean age, and then further back into the Lemurian age. Having thus arrived at the starting point of earthly humanity, we find there a time when humanity, with regard to its spiritual aspects, was much closer to the divine, a time when humanity evolved not only from a life of spirit, but also from morality. Accordingly, what is shown to exist at the beginning of earth evolution is morality, not non-morality. Morality is a primordial divine gift, part of the original composition of human nature. Just as spiritual power was present in human nature when humanity had not yet descended as far earthward, essentially a large part of immorality entered human evolution in just the way described through the betrayal of higher mystery secrets during the ancient Atlantean age. Thus, we cannot speak about morality as if it were something that would only have developed in humanity over time. Rather, morality is something that lies at the foundation of the human soul, something that has been hidden and suppressed only by later civilization. When we look at the matter in the right light, we cannot even say that immorality came into the world through folly. Rather, it came into the world because the mystery secrets were betrayed, disclosed to human beings who were not sufficiently mature to receive them. It was through this in particular that people were tempted and then succumbed and degenerated. Therefore, in order for them to rise again, you can gather this from today's presentation, something was needed that would clear away everything that had positioned itself in opposition to the moral impulse in the human soul. Let me put this another way. Suppose we have before us a criminal, someone we call immoral in the most obvious sense of the word. On no account must we think that this immoral person is devoid of moral impulses. They are there, and we shall find them if we look into the foundation of that person's soul. There is no human soul, with the exception of black magicians, who are not our concern here, in which there is not a foundation of moral goodness. If a person is bad, it is because what has arisen in the course of time as spiritual error has overlain, covered the moral goodness. Human nature is not bad. Originally it truly was good. An objective observation of human nature shows us that in its deepest nature it is good, and that it was the subsequent spiritual errors that diverted people from the moral path of goodness.
Therefore, these moral errors must, in the course of time, be corrected in human beings. The errors themselves and also their consequences must be rectified. However, where the consequences of evil, of immorality, are so severe that disease demons are already present, then super-moral forces, like those of Francis of Assisi, must also be active. The betterment of human beings always must have its foundation in eradicating these spiritual errors. But what is needed for this? Take everything I have now told you and condense it into one basic mood or feeling. Let the facts speak. Let them speak to your feelings and perceptions. and Try to gather them together into one fundamental feeling. You will then be able to say, quote, What attitude does a human being need to have toward another human being? This is precisely what is needed, the belief in the original goodness of humanity as a whole and of each single human being in particular. The first thing we must say about morality, if we want to put it into words at all, is that there is an immeasurable goodness at the foundation of human nature. This is what Francis of Assisi realized. And when he was approached by some of those afflicted with the dreadful disease of leprosy, then as a good Christian of that time, he said somewhat the following to himself, quote, A disease such as this is in some respects the result of sin, but because sin is spiritual error, because the disease is the consequence of spiritual error, it must therefore be invalidated and eradicated by a strong opposing spiritual power. Close quote. In this way, Francis of Assisi saw how, in some respects, the consequence, the punishment of sin, showed itself outwardly on the sinner. But he also saw the goodness of human nature. He saw what has been placed as divine spiritual forces at the foundation of each human being. This tremendous faith in the goodness of every human being's essential nature, even of the one being punished, was what especially distinguished Francis of Assisi. This made it possible for the contrasting power to appear in his soul, the power of a love, which out of its moral essence gives, helps, and indeed even heals. And no one who has fully transformed this faith in the original goodness of human nature into an all-encompassing impulse can come to any other decision than to love this human nature as such. These are, to begin with, the two fundamental impulses that can establish a truly moral life. First, the faith in the divine that is at the foundation of every human soul. And second, the boundless love for humanity that springs forth from this faith. For it was only this boundless love that could lead Francis of Assisi to the infirm, the crippled, and those stricken with the plague. And then a third aspect may be added, one that is necessarily founded on the first two impulses. A person who has built a firm foundation of faith in the goodness of the human soul, and who has this kind of love for human nature, can only come to the realization, quote, What we see arising from the collaboration of the original goodness of the human soul and love that works in deeds, 
justifies a perspective on the future wherein every human soul, no matter how far it may have descended from the height of spiritual life, can be led back to this spiritual life again. This is the third impulse. This is the hope for every human soul, that it can find its way back to the divine spiritual. We can say that Francis of Assisi heard these three impulses expressed countless times, that they repeatedly appeared before his mind's eye during his initiation into the Kolkin mysteries on the Black Sea. We can also say, however, that in the life he had to take up as Francis of Assisi, he preached very little of faith and love, that instead he was himself the personification, the embodiment of this faith and this love. One could say that these were embodied in him and that in him they appeared as a living symbol before the world. But in the center of this there was, of course, that which really worked, for it was not faith that worked and neither was it hope. These one must indeed have, but only love works. Love stands in the center and it is love which in that single incarnation of Francis of Assisi carried the actual moral development of humanity toward the divine. And this love, which we know was the result of his initiation in the Colchian mysteries, how have we seen it become part of him and unfold in him? We saw that the knightly virtues of the ancient European spirit appeared in Francis of Assisi, that he was a chivalrous youth. We saw that courage and fortitude were transformed in his individuality permeated by the Christ impulse, into active, practical love. And with this we see the ancient courage, the old fortitude resurrected, as it were, in the love that we encounter in Francis of Assisi. Spiritualized ancient courage transformed into the spiritual, and fortitude transformed into the spiritual. This is love. It is interesting to notice how much of what has just been said also corresponds to the outer historical development of humanity. Let us go back a few centuries into pre-Christian times, into the fourth post-Atlantean cultural epoch. Among the people whose culture, in particular, has lent its name to this Greco-Latin epoch, we find the Greek philosopher Plato, who wrote, among other things, about morality, about human virtues. From the way he described them, we can recognize that Plato was reticent with respect to the highest things, the actual secrets, but that he was able to put the things he permitted himself to say into the mouth of Socrates. Plato, addressing a time in European culture in which the Christ impulse was not yet active, describes what he recognized as the highest virtues, the virtues regarded by the Greeks as those which a moral person should have above all else. To begin with, Plato describes three primary virtues. There is a fourth one, which we shall also get to know. The first virtue is that of wisdom. Wisdom as such is a virtue, according to Plato. And we have seen that, in the most manifold ways, wisdom indeed lies at the foundation of moral life. In India, the wisdom of the Brahmins was at the basis of human life. In Europe, the wisdom receded more into the background, but it lived in the northern mysteries where the European Brahmins 
had the task of remedying what had been corrupted to the betrayal in ancient Atlantis. Wisdom does indeed stand behind all morality, as we shall see in tomorrow's lecture. Then, in keeping with the mysteries he was connected with, Plato also describes courage as a virtue, that is to say the very quality we find above all in the European population. As a third virtue he designates temperance or moderation, in other words the opposite of the passionate fostering of lower human drives. Those are the three primary virtues of Plato, wisdom, courage or fortitude, and temperance or moderation, the curbing of the sensual drives active in human beings. And finally Plato describes the harmonious balancing of these three virtues as a fourth virtue, which he calls justice or righteousness. Here, then, we have a description given by one of the most eminent European minds in pre-Christian times of what were regarded then as the most important qualities of human nature. Among the later European population, courage and fortitude becomes permeated by the Christ impulse and by what we call the I, capital. What Plato refers to as the virtue of courage is thereby spiritualized and thus becomes love. What is most important is that we see how new moral impulses enter into humanity, how what formerly existed in the form we have described later becomes something quite different. Thus, unless we wish to disparage Christian morality, we may not list the virtues as wisdom, fortitude, temperance, and justice, for then we might receive the response, quote, If you had all of these and yet had not love, never would you enter the kingdom of heaven. Let us bear in mind the epoch in which, as we have seen, a current was poured into humanity, an impulse that caused wisdom and courage to be spiritualized and then to reappear as love. In the next lecture we shall consider how wisdom, moderation and justice have continued to develop, and in exploring this question we shall come to understand the particular moral mission of the anthroposophical movement for our present time. The end of Lecture 4